So this morning, we'll be taking up where our pastor left off last week, and we'll be uh, beginning Matthew chapter 8, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Because after hearing pastor's message last week, I continued reading in Matthew and realized that the stories in chapter 8 flow directly from the narrative that contains the Sermon on the Mount, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I had originally thought that we would be able to restrict most of our time to verses 1 through 4, but after reading through it, I, shocker, came to discover that that would be nearly impossible, and that the Sermon on the Mount account really goes through part of chapter 9. So today will be a continuation of last week, as well as an overview of probably most of chapter 8. I don't think we'll get to the last um, third section in there, Um, but we'll take it bit by bit and see how far we go. And we'll begin with verses 1 through 4. And I have to say at the outset that we're not going to be able to cover all that I'd like to. Um, We'll probably only be able to address the first two miracles that are performed, but I would really like to encourage everybody here to even this afternoon, go home and study this chapter in light of the Sermon on the Mount and in light of what we learned last week, some of which we are going to recover this morning. So if you're there, go ahead and follow along with, with me. Matthew 8, and we'll start with verses 1 through 4. When he, he being Jesus, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, at first glance, this passage may seem like an odd thing to happen next after the Sermon on the Mount, but it is a perfect proof for what Jesus had just taught. So to do a little bit of recap, last week we learned that the sermon that Jesus gave, um, the one that effectively kick-started his public ministry on earth after his baptism, of course. The, the sermon he gave was a reiteration, as it were, of the law of Moses and was even harsher than the law of Moses. The iteration that Jesus gave stated explicitly that outward adherence to the law was not enough. As we see later with the Pharisees, but that the thoughts and intentions of the heart were of greater matter at a deeper level, because we know, for by the law shall no man be justified in his sight. What else did we learn? We also learned that the righteousness of individuals, meaning the Jews and whatever Gentiles were there listening to it, and the righteousness of me and the righteousness of you, had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And we also learned last week that the people may have thought to themselves, well, those are the most righteous people on earth. That's not possible. They had to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, and one could not simply be clean outwardly, 
but one had to be made clean inwardly, which is something that David understood about the law of Moses when he said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David got it. He understood that it's not about, it's not at a fundamental level adherence to the law, the letter of the law. The law killeth. The Spirit giveth life, and David understood that. And Ezekiel caught a glimpse of this reality when Yahweh said, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And it's important to note here that inward cleanliness is something that only Yahweh can do to man. One other thing that you may or may not have noticed, um, but something that wasn't stated explicitly last week, is that this Sermon on the Mount narrative, I think, presents Jesus as a new and greater Moses. I mean, you've got a man up on a mountain giving another iteration of the law to the people of God. So Jesus is presented as will come to find not only the law giver, but the law fulfiller. So here's the question that remains. What does this have to do with a leper being healed? Well, the first thing to remember before diving in um, is that the miracles of Jesus, I'm convinced, always serve a dual or triple purpose, meaning that they're meant to signify more than just the fact that he can heal physical ailments and diseases and that he has authority over the physical realm. And more than that, uh, more than the fact that they signify his divinity, they seem to always represent a spiritual healing or a spiritual reality that's prophesied in the Old Testament. And we'll address this a a little bit later on to to a small degree. We won't get into it too deep. But a leper comes up to him, most likely a Hebrew man, and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, or if you will for this to happen, you can make me clean. You're able to do this. And then Jesus touched him and healed him. So? So what? What does that have to do with what we heard in the Sermon on the Mount? Turn to Leviticus chapter 14, if you would. Leviticus 14. And we don't have time to go into much detail on the the symbolism and imagery included in these, in these laws. So we're just going to read the laws, I promise, in double time, just to help us understand Matthew 8 a bit better. And we're going to read the whole law on this so that we get a sense of its gravity, but like I said, I'll read quickly. Not flippantly, but just understanding that we, are, we do have time constraints. Okay, laws for the cleansing of lepers in double time. It's 31 verses that we're going to read. Uh, Leviticus 14, 2 through 32. Uh, The Lord says to Moses in this account, This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of the leprous person is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds and sear wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. 
He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. And he who is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes and shave off all his hair and bathe himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent seven days. And on the seventh day he shall shave off all his hair from his head, his beard, and his eyebrows. He shall shave off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And he shall be clean. That's it, right? Nope. And on the eighth day he shall take two male lambs without blemish, and one ewe lamb, a year old without blemish, and a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil and one log of oil. And the priest who cleanses him shall set the man who is to be cleansed and these things before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall take one of the male lambs and offer it for a guilt offering along with the log of oil and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. And he shall kill the lamb in the place where they killed the sin offering and the burnt offering in the place of the sanctuary. For the guilt offering, like the sin offering, belongs to the priest. It is most holy. The priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering, and the priest shall put it on the lobe of, his, of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then the priest shall take some of the log of oil and pour it into the palm of his own left hand and dip his right finger in the oil that is in his left hand and sprinkle some oil with his finger seven times before the Lord. And some of the oil that remains in his hand, the priest shall put on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, and on top of the blood of the guilt offering. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's, hands, priest's hand, he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed. Then the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord. The priest shall offer the sin offering to make atonement for him who is to be cleansed from his unclean, uncleanness. And afterward he shall kill the burnt offering, and the priest shall offer the burnt offering and the grain offering on the altar. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be clean. However, if he is poor and cannot afford so much, then he shall take one male lamb for a guilt offering to be waved to make atonement for him, and a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering and a log of oil. Also two turtle doves or two pigeons, whichever he can afford. The one shall be a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. And on the eighth day he shall bring them for his cleansing to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the priest shall take the lamb of the guilt offering and the log of oil, and the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord, and he shall kill the lamb of the guilt offering. When the priest shall take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour some of the oil into the palm of his own left hand, and shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord. And the priest shall put some of the oil that is in his hand on the lobe of the right ear of him who is to be cleansed, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot, in the place where the blood of the guilt offering was put. And the rest of the oil that is in the priest's hand 
he shall put on the head of him who is to be cleansed to make atonement for him before the Lord. And he shall offer of the turtle doves or pigeons, whichever he can afford, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, along with a grain offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for him who is being cleansed. This is the law for him in whom a case of leprous disease who cannot afford the offerings for his cleansing. Crystal clear, yeah? I didn't, I didn't actually verify this before this morning, um, before right this second, so obviously I can't verify it, but this has got to be one of the longest ritual cleansings in the Old Testament, which would make sense given what we're about, about to see. So that was all just background information to, to expound further on why the healing of a leprous person is a big deal. Okay, back in Matthew for a moment. In Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29, where we were last week, the people are astonished at his teaching because he was teaching as though he had authority. And we know that he did have authority. And this miracle over the leper demonstrates that. Here's the kicker. See, in the Old Testament, leprosy, which really is just a word for various skin diseases, it doesn't mean exclusively leprosy as we think of leprosy, um, but in the Old Testament, it was a sort of physical representation of sin, a physical depiction on the outside of what happens, of what sin does to a person on the inside. This is why the person with leprosy had to go outside the camp and away from the people of Yahweh. Leprosy is not something that can be tolerated among Yahweh's people because it will inevitably affect all of them. So the leper goes outside the camp until he's healed. And there's another emphasis to make. It wasn't just that he goes away from the camp until he is healed. He's there permanently and can only be seen by the priest, the text says, if he is healed. Only then does he get to go through the cleansing process. See, the reason why Matthew 8, 1 through 4 are amazing in light of Christ's sermon on the mount is because Jesus, who is our high priest forever, both validates his authority as God for the crowds by performing a miracle and healing this man. Yes, that does happen. But what else, and even more, he shows himself to be the great high priest by both healing this man and by seeing that he's healed, which is something the priest did. Now, if the law-bound legalist crowds had been paying close attention, they may have picked up on the flow of events from when the sermon started and perhaps would have thought something like this. This man, Jesus, is teaching with authority and is delivering to us a new revelation about the law that's even more burdensome and heavy. How in the world can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? We don't have any hope. There's no way we can do that. But, after that, they should have garnered 
some hope from the miracles that Jesus performs in front of them immediately after that, when Jesus himself not just inspects a leper like the priest did in the Old Testament, but proving himself God, heals the man of his disease. You see the significance? The leper got it. The leper understood, at least to some degree. He recognizes that his disease is literally impossible for him to deal with. So he cries out to the only one who can cure him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus makes him clean, both validating his teaching of the law and his divinity and his purpose on earth of curing man of his true and ultimate disease of sin. And this, I think this is why Matthew includes this here in the gospel, not just because it was the next chronological event that happened, but because it was providentially intended to be here. It proves what Jesus taught on the mount, and it foreshadows what Jesus will later do in his death and resurrection. Okay, speaking of foreshadowing, let's take a look at the next miracle. And parenthetically, before we get here, before we get to that, Matthew is a brilliant storyteller. Not just good at it, but he knows what he's doing. He knows who his audience was, and he knows to whom he's writing. He knows what to include and where to put it. He was a brilliant storyteller. He's very carefully and meticulously setting up the connections between the law of Moses, Jesus' fulfillment of it, and the impact that it has on all men. And remember that Matthew's gospel was to the Jews primarily. So he is including law themes very heavily in this gospel. Okay, so the next miracle is the healing of a centurion's servant in verses 5 through 13 of Matthew 8. And we'll go ahead and read that right now. Starting in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. The same thing that the crowd said after his sermon. Jesus marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Okay, so this one might not be as easy for us to see since we are 21st century non-Hebrews. I think most of us are at least. But the significance is there nonetheless. So here we've got a Roman centurion 
who comes to Jesus asking for his servant to be healed. His servant is suffering and is in pain. Jesus says that he will come and heal him, but the man presses back, saying that he's not worthy to have Jesus in his home, but that just a word right then and there would suffice. Now, what's interesting is the reason that he requests this. He says, I'm not worthy. Say the word and he'll be healed. What's his qualification for that? What's his reason? For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me saying, go and come. What a curious rationale. And when Jesus hears these words, the text says that he marveled at them, and then he turns to the crowds following him and says that there isn't this sort of faith in all of Israel. Then he says something that would have caught the attention of a Jewish person familiar with their Old Testament. He says that many will come from east and west and recline at table with the patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. The centurion's a Gentile. And we know that Jesus came first for the house of Israel. That the gospel, we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Jesus came first for the house of Israel. So what we're seeing here with the Roman soldier is the very beginning, the very beginning of the Gentile inclusion and the beginning of the fulfillment of Hosea 1, 9, and 10. You can turn there if you want to. I'll go ahead and read it. Hosea 1, 9, and 10. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. Well, that was written to Jews, and it sounds like it's talking about the Jewish people. So how can you say that Gentiles who are being referenced in Hosea are actually in some way this Roman centurion? We could get into... Uh, you know, the depths of what happened, what's happening with Israel right now, what happens to the church later on, is there a plan for Israel, uh, all of that. But suffice it to say, Paul quotes this passage in Romans 9, 22 through 26, where he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy— which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, Paul, you're going to need a proof text for that. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The Gentiles are even here with this centurion 
beginning to be included in the promises that were made to Abraham. So the lingering question is this. What in the world does this have to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, well, remember what we learned last week? The reiteration of the law, its condemning effect on mankind, its heavy burden on those who would seek to follow it? Paul addresses this very topic a little later on in Romans 9. In verses 30 and 32, he says, What shall we say then? We shall say that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. They're doing exactly what they should not have done at Jesus' teaching, and the centurion is doing what he should have done, realized that righteousness comes by faith, not by works of the law. So the effect of the Sermon on the Mount for Israel may very well have been, great, more law to follow. The effect on this Gentile centurion and the leper, as both of whom are are demonstrations of a correct response to the preaching of the law, the effect was faith. Righteousness by faith. Faith such that Christ had not seen in all of Israel. It wasn't there. Okay, quick note. With all of this in mind, did the church replace Israel? No. Romans 11.29. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This Gentile centurion is one of the first in the fulfillment of Hosea 1.10 and the other and a number of other Old Testament passages, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And guess who originally made those promises? That's right, it was Yahweh, God of the Israelites. He's the one who made those promises. But guess who's bringing it to pass? Jesus is the one bringing it to pass. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is acting, it seems, as a sort of catalyst for exactly what Paul is explaining in Romans 9 about the Gentiles, which is what Yahweh told to his prophets in the Old Testament. This isn't new. The scales are falling off the eyes, but this is nothing new. So what? Why bother making these observations and scriptural and historical connections? Well, for one thing, we see them because they were meant to be seen. In other words, we have to first see what God intends for us to see from his word. Only after that can we hope to make some practical application from it. Okay, so now that we've seen it, how should something like this change the way we live and the way we look at the Bible and how we think and 
uh, think about and how we worship God and how we serve one another and think about and view one another. The first thing I would want to mention is we especially in this room should be so grateful to God that we as Gentiles are somehow, even if we can't quite work out the the mechanics behind it all, we should be so grateful that we're somehow beneficiaries of the promises that were made to Abraham. I don't know, and I'd wager that nobody else in this room knows exactly how that can be the case, that the promises God made to his people Israel are spilling out through Jesus over onto the rest of the world. We know that in Abraham all the world should be blessed. We know that. I don't know that anyone is able to put into words how that can be the case, but it is. We should be grateful to God that he, through his Son, cleansed us of our spiritual leprosy and brought us back into the camp to worship with his people. We should be grateful that we can now, with hearts of flesh and not of stone, act out his good will for us. The Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount did have the effect, yes, of being an indictment of the, the Jews. The effect on we who are redeemed ought to be one of joyfully living out his good will for men. What's another application? One other is that we should be living out by the power of his Holy Spirit the commands that he gave and doing it joyfully. Jesus himself said that if you love me, you will do my commandments, period. If you love me, you will do my commandments. We have an obligation to obey his commandments. And now, because we are not pursuing righteousness by works, but pursuing, pursuing, if you can even say that, we're pursued with righteousness by faith. And because of that, we can do what we are, we have the capacity to do what Jesus would have us do now. We have hearts of flesh and not of stone. We aren't hardened to doing what God originally intended for us to do. Serving him and serving our neighbors and serving him by serving our neighbors and by loving our neighbors and brethren. We can do that now. So to close up, I know we took a fairly deep dive into a couple of miracles that Jesus did, but we had to. We here at Redbridge Baptist Church are rightfully huge proponents of studying things in the three C's. Context, context, context. The backdrop for these miracles is the proclaiming of a greater law and the setting up of Jesus as a divine lawgiver who is greater than Moses because he's also our high priest, who is also our king. The next two accounts are the healing, the next two accounts after the sermon that he gives are the healing of a Hebrew leper and the faith of a believing Gentile. Those are the correct responses to the teaching of this law, turning in faith to Christ, the one who can heal 
of leprosy, which is, which is a, a poster, a banner of sin. And the Gentile, who had faith exceeding that of anyone in Israel. What about the rest of the story? The rest of the story is about how that continues to be orchestrated and how that continues to providentially play out with us in this room even. That's an amazing thing. That the story of law and gospel and redemption and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has impacts today, right now, for the people in this room. So the rest of the story is about how that continues to be orchestrated and about the story that we're living in today. And it it continues to proclaim what God has done for his people, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are so grateful. I, I don't know what words to use because I don't know exactly how this has happened. What wondrous love is this that has spilled out over onto us? What wondrous love is this that we should be called sons of God? We are so grateful for it and pray that as we go out from here this morning, that we would go out with joy and with thankfulness and with praise to you, and that we would be faithful to serve you and to carry out your will for us and and be loving towards our neighbors and our families and, most importantly, one another here at Redbridge Baptist Church. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.